Podcast. Podcast. The one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song by some fire one chapter. Deep. I'm your host, Jeff, better known as Billy Beakish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 67th episode of the Nauticast entitled Paradise Lost, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Sansa 6 in which Sansa Stark, reeling from witnessing her father's execution, is forced to stand strong against Joffrey, who is the fucking worst, Marin Trant, who is also the fucking worst, and Santa Clegane, who is not entirely the fucking worst. This is definitely a brutal, though brilliant, chapter to reread. Thankfully, we don't have to suffer alone. We have a, a new guest on the Not a Cast this week. You may know her from her writing at Hypable or from her work on the Vassals of Kingsgrave and Nice Jewish Fangirls podcast. Please welcome to the Not a Cast, McCall Schick. Thanks for coming. Hi, thank you guys for having me. Yay. I'm glad my months of badgering you slightly have, <laughs> have uh, paid their dividends. <laughs> always, always. Yeah, it's, it's really great to have you have you on. I know we've been we've met actually a few times in person. I, I believe the fir- was the first time at Ice and Fire Con. Or was were you at Balticon? It I was. Remember. I was not at Balticon, um, but it was at Ice and Fire Con twenty sixteen. Yes, that's the only Ice and Fire Con I managed to make it to. But um, yes, and I was I was very disappointed. You were there, Jeff. Uh, I, I was disappointed I was there too everyone else was disappointed <laughs> just massive amounts of disappointment rolling from the fandom at my presence there but then we also met again at the uh, Fire and Blood event back in yes. November which was a lot of fun we got to hear George yes, talk indeed. about Fire and Blood Volume 1 and uh, we uh, we had a, got a, spilled a few drinks afterwards so to speak as the kids are saying these days yeah that was a are great evening <laughs> I don't know I don't know what the kids are saying I'm 35 fucking years old I don't know what the kids are saying these days <laughs> Uh, the, the slow motion existential panic that is the podcast continues, folks. <laughs> it absolutely is. So we're really excited to have McCall on with us, and it's going to be a lot of fun examining this um, editor chapter. Catelyn? Catelyn? Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop doing that joke. I promise. Abbott is shaking his head at me like every single week because I do this every single time we have a Sansa chapter. I promise after this episode, no more. I'm going to pretend it's someone else's chapter. That is such a lie of a promise, Jeff. How, how dare you look me and also McCall in the eye and make such a, a false promise? Ned Stark would be so ashamed. Uh, well, you know, Ned Stark lies every once in a while, so to speak. So, you know, we're all we're all afforded a couple honorable lies here and there. All right. Listen, as someone who does like Davos, but is um, generally unimpressed with the, the Stannis standum that has developed, I really dare one of you to be like, who are we talking about this week? Oh, yeah, it's definitely Sansa. Oh no, it's it's the the, the onion guy. <laughs> oh, now I'll have to do that just to watch Jeff's face. Like, yeah. I gave him a little time to forget about this, and then I'll I'll slip it like a dagger between his ribs. Thank you. You're already contributing. You're already making this podcast better. Well done. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna I forget I forget after we record what we even say when we're recording itself. So come like fall 2018 or actually 2019 rather because we're in 2019 when we get to Davos chapters, you will definitely have to stick that in my ribs. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council members on Patreon, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Ward of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O, Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lord Jean, Master of Coin, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warren of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whisperers, Lord Baby the Onion Baby, Lord Blackheart the Defiant, Master of Zorse, Lord Micah, Warden of the West of the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym That Was Promised, the High Bearded Priest, the Blue Ringed Octoling, Lord Jake, Assistant to the Hand of the King, and Lady Zena Valyrian. 
Thank you, counselors, very much. Thank you, counselors, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be potentially talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Windsor sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from our newest small council member, Lady Zena Valerian, who asks, Did you guys ever have a chance to see my message about the significance of Sansa's direwolf name, Shirley Jackson's The Renegade? If you're not familiar, basically it's about an outcast woman who moved from her city life into a very rural area. Her dog is accused of killing her neighbor's chicken. The town then goes into a somewhat pack mentality, very much like Jackson's other short story, The Lottery, and proceeds to taunt and torment the dog, describing how they're going to chop off the dog's head. The dog's name is Lady. Coincidence? I think not. <laughs> Goodness, he's such an amazing writer. Well done, George. What do you think? What do you think about that, Jeff? Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the story or not, but does that sound like a, a strong connection to you? Well, first off, I don't read, so I'm not really familiar with this Shirley Jackson figure, person sort of thing. Is she like an author or something like that? I'm told as such, yes. <laughs> That's good. So, yes, I, I am somewhat familiar with Shirley Jackson. I am not anywhere near an expert on her writing, although I did read her Wikipedia entry prior to coming on to this episode itself. And I did skim The Renegade as a PDF file, which was published, I believe, in Harper's Magazine in 1948-1949. So, yeah, I think it's a really interesting coincidence. I'm not sure if George based his writing off of that. Though, as we know, George is an excellent purveyor of all things literature and all things fiction, fantasy, historical... He basically reads a, a whole lot of, of things as, as we've come to discover here in doing this podcast and in seeing some of the stuff that George is recommending. If you go to his not a, not a blog, you'll see him recommending all sorts of different books that he's reading, shows that he's watching and different things like that. So we know that George is well read. Did he read Shirley Jackson's The Renegade? I, I couldn't find anything in my um, my hour of research to indicate that he has actually read Shirley Jackson's The Renegade, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he hasn't and that he didn't base Lady off of that specific story itself. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I've always felt, and a lot of people have argued this, that there's a strong Southern Gothic strain in George's writing when you get to A Fever Dream, his vampire novel set in the American South, which we might be doing uh, patron-only episodes on if we get to our $5,000 a month uh, stretch goal over at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASO IAF. And uh, the one Shirley Jackson story, We Have Always Lived in the Castle, that I really like, and that's about a, a family on the, the, the kind of the edge of town that has this dark past and there's all these twists about poison, and it does feel incorporated into elements like the Purple Wedding and certain other kind of theatrical, dramatic elements in The Song of Ice and Fire. So uh, I'm hesitant to say it's a direct connection just because Sansa's wolf being lady is such a, a blunt, clear, metaphorical connection on its own. You almost don't need a source for that. Like, that's just, <laughs> given what he does with Sansa in this book, as we're going to see in this chapter more than ever, you don't really even need to have a particular highfalutin literary source from that it's just kind of a clear thematic thing to do with her character but i do think that fits the kind of the the gothic tone you see in a lot of george's writing so i wouldn't be surprised and i do like exploring that uh, connection between the, george's writing and that genre in particular what do you think mccall yeah i mean i i think i think you guys have kind of nailed it it's it, it seems like the type of thing that could have been a connection um it might be the sort of thing that you would ask George and he would be like, yes, I've read Shirley Jackson, you know, something like that. Um, but because I'm sure he has. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, the fact that like the, the dog in the story seems doomed and the dog and Sansa's dog obviously has, has been doomed. It, I guess it's one of those cool literary coincidences, even if it's not necessarily intentional. See, Jeff, this is why literature is fun. 
it, it, <laughs> is well it said. fun? I mean, there's there's that Twitter thread that's talking about all the books that people didn't like reading in high school. And I was just shocked, shocked to see all of the terrible choices that you all made out there. Who the, who the <laughs> fuck doesn't like Huckleberry Finn? Like, come on, you animals. Come on, get, get your heads in the game. Like the actual books that you don't like are like the algebra and geometry books, not the literature books. You know, all those books are, are excellent. All the classics that you had to read in high school, you were supposed to read because they're classics in either ancient, medieval, renaissance, industrial revolution. Is that what next comes in historical in, in history? I don't know. Or modern Americana. Like these are things that are amazing and they're supposed to inform our perspective. So you guys need to get your heads back in the game. I was glad to see people dragging Ethan Frome. That is the most worthless piece of misery porn that any human being has ever been put through and subjecting high school students to it especially. But, but it does have quite a twist. It does It does have a hell of a twist. I will give it that. Um, but it's it's no Sansa 6 a Game of Thrones. No. No, no. no it's, it's definitely not Sansa 6 a Game of Thrones. But before we get to Sansa 6 itself, we just want to remind folks very quickly that our next Patreon episode for all five year old patrons entitled Whitewashed or Blackwashed, the adaptation of Danny, John, and Tyrion in Game of Thrones, is coming everyone's way on the last Thursday in June, which is going to be June 27th, and will be available on the 25th and 26th for our small council and Kingsguard members, respectively. So if you guys have not gotten enough of our coverage of Game of Thrones, the TV shows, have you guys watched this show? Apparently, it's, it's a big thing these days. No, I just watch Black Sails, buddy, and like watch Hannibal for the fifth time. I'm I'm far too pretentious to watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have done some reviewing of, on, of Game of Thrones on Vassals of Kings, right, McCall? Yeah, once or twice. Um, we definitely didn't have like three different units podcasting about it or anything. That would have been <laughs> obsessive and definitely over the top for what it was. <laughs> yeah. Well... We all just can't let it go, and for good reason. So yeah, that'll be up at the last week of the month. We'll be talking about Danny, John, and Tyrion, and we've talked about all three of those characters and how they've kind of fizzled out to a certain extent in later seasons in isolation, but I think putting them together gives you the clearest sense of where the show was trying to go with those characters, how that compares to the books, and you know, just overall what we think of, of the final product in, in relation to each other. So look forward to that. You mean Patreon. men good, Danny bad? <laughs> Sorry. That's the, that's the colon subtitle for sure. <laughs> so that'll be up over at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIAF. So thank you to all our patrons and thank you especially to Lady Zena Valerian for being on our small council and for asking that question. Absolutely. Thank you, Lady Zena, for the question. So as Emma was talking about, we are talking about a Game of Thrones Sansa 6 this week. And oh my God, I think I'm looking at 21 pages of notes that we have here. So, you know, this should be a short, like 40 minute episode or so to speak. So you guys would probably enjoy that. But before we actually get to the actual discussion, you have to plow. I have to I have to do the brave and courageous task of plowing through the synopsis for Game of Thrones Sansa 6. And here is its synopsis. And just as a fair warning before we actually get in, there are descriptions of sexual assault and physical abuse against minors in this summary. So if you guys, this is not your thing, no shame. If you want to like skip this portion of it, totally fine or skip this episode altogether. So here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones Sansa 6. <clears throat> High atop makers hold fast, curtains drawn, sleeping, weeping, sleeping, laying under blankets in cold grief and sleeping yet again. Sansa Stark embraces the darkness. Sometimes her sleep was dreamless, but other times she dreamed of Ned. She saw him wherever she went, saw him thrown to the ground by the gold cloaks, saw Ilan Payne coming forward, unsheathing ice, and she saw the moment when she wanted to look away. She wanted to, 
Her legs had gone up from under, and she had fallen to her knees, yet somehow she could not turn her head, and all the people were screaming and shouting, and her prince had smiled at her. He'd smiled, and she'd felt safe, but only for a heartbeat, until he said those words, and her father's legs. That was when she remembered his legs, the way they jerked when Sir Ellen, when the sword... Whew. Sansa thinks that she's about to die and that wouldn't be so bad. Maybe she could toss herself from the window and end her pain. Maybe then the singers would sing of her grief. Her body would lie on the stones below, broken and innocent, shaming all those who betrayed her. Once she'd even gotten all the way to the window, threw open the shutters and prepared to jump. Instead, she, quote, lost her courage and ran back to her bed crying. And damn, Sansa, that's some powerfully sad shit. Servant girls try to talk with Sansa, but she refuses to speak with them. And then that piece of shit Grand Maester Pycelle, who, by the way, is going to be killed quite appropriately by children in A Dance with Dragons, comes into Sansa's bedchambers. And let's just be aware, this is the part was, I was talking, referencing before about the sexual assault portion of it. He brings a box of, quote, medicines, feels her brow, forces her to undress, and then touches her all over while a bedbaid holds her down. When he's done being an utterly vile human being, Pycelle gives her honey water and herbs, tells her to take a swallow every night. And Sansa, in response, drinks the entire potion right then and there and passes out. Sansa dreams of Sir Ellen coming up the stairs for her ice in hand. She couldn't run or hide. He just stood outside her door in her dreams, and Sansa was naked. She tried covering herself, but the door began to open, the sword point of ice poking through. She woke murmuring, please, please, I'll be good, I'll be good, please don't. But there was no one to hear. When they finally came for her, it wasn't Sir Ellen at all. It was Joffrey, Santa Clegane, Sir Ares Oakhart, and Sir Marin Trant, who came into her room. Joffrey walks in, slams the door, yanks back her blankets, and orders Sansa to attend him at court. But Sansa, she don't want to go. No, please, leave me be. So Joffrey kindly sees that Sansa is in an emotionally fraught state and backs off, right? Nope. If you'll rise to dress yourself, my hound will do it for you. Sansa begs more, but Joffrey orders Sandra Clegane to get Sansa out of bed. And weirdly, so weirdly, the hound kind of gently pulls her out of bed and tells her to do as your bed child. He then almost pushes her gently towards a wardrobe. Hmm, that's interesting. Behind the wardrobe, Sansa states that she did everything she was asked of. She wrote letters, and Joffrey, you bitch, you promised you'd be merciful. Please let me go home. I won't do any treason. I'll be good. I swear it. I don't have traitor's blood. I don't. I only want to go home. As it please you. And of course, this doesn't please Joffrey. He's still to marry Sansa. Well, Sansa doesn't want to marry some psychopathic king. It's the whole, you know, chopping off her dad's head, Joffrey, you fucking asshole. But according to Joffrey, he was quite merciful to that traitor Ned. He could have had Ned torn apart or flayed Bolton style. But instead, he'd given Ned mercy. He'd given him a clean death. Sansa stared at him, seeing him for the first time. He was wearing a padded crimson doublet patterned with lions and a cloth of gold cape with a high collar that framed his face. She wondered how she could have ever thought him handsome. His lips were as soft and red as the worms he found after a rain, and his eyes were vain and cruel. I hate you, she whispered. Get him, Sansa. Get him. Joffrey's face hardens, and he states how Mama Cersei said it's not fitting for a king to hit his wife, which, you know, Cersei is right on that count at least. So Joffrey, being that evil little shit that he is, orders Sir Brave Sir Baron Trant into action. The quote-unquote knight steps up and backhands, with, and backhands her with a gloved fist. Sansa falls to the ground. Will you obey me now, or shall I have him chastise you again, Joffrey says like a fucking idiot. Sansa's ears rings, and she reaches up and feels that her ears are now wet with blood. I, as, as you command, my lord, your grace, Joffrey corrects, I shall look for you in court. 
Joffrey stomps off like a brat with Moron Knights, Marin, and Ares in tow, but Sandra Clegane stays behind. He urges Sansa to spare herself pain and give Joffrey what he wants. And what exactly does he want? Well, he wants Sansa to smile, smell sweet, be his lady love, recite pretty little words, love him, and fear him. And, you know, as much as as much shit as I'm going to give Sandra in this episode, it's not exactly the worst advice that he's giving Sansa in this horrible situation she's in now. Sandra departs and Sansa calls for a bath and powder to hide the bruise on her aching, swollen face. The hot bath makes her think of Winterfell. Her handmaids wash her, wash her hair, and brush her hair until it springs back in thick auburn curls. Kind of love that imagery. Sansa dresses in a green silk gown, the same one she'd worn to the hand's tourney. Sansa hopes that this will remind Joffrey not to be such a little shit, and very sadly, this will not be the case. Sansa eats a little finely, and quote-unquote, Sir Marantrant comes striding in at noon to retrieve her wearing his best whites. And Sansa notes that his face is dour with pouchy bags under his eyes, a wide, sour mouth with rusty red hair spotted with gray. He calls Sansa, my lady, and bows like a douche who had just hit her a few hours before. I fucking hate him. Can't wait for him to get eaten by field mice come the winds of winter. Marin tells Sansa that he's come to fetch her for Joffrey's audience hall, and Sansa asks what he would do if she refuses. He asks her if she's refusing. Sansa looks him over. He did not hate her. Sansa realized. Neither did he love her. He felt nothing for her at all. She was only a... a thing to him. She's not refusing the psychopath anyhow. She stands be- She stands, wanting to rage and hit him to warn him that she- when she was the queen, Marin would get his ass exiled if he ever hit her again. But she remembers Sandra's warning and she says she's coming. But Sansa decides to get brave and I love it. You are no true knight, Sir Marin. Fuck yes, Sansa. But Marin doesn't care. Sandra might have laughed, but Marin is, as stated previously, a true psychopath. Sansa arrives at an empty balcony overlooking the throne room. Joffrey sits atop the Iron Throne with the small council at the table below. Joffrey is, you know, mostly bored by the 90% of the cases presented to him, so he delegates the small council to decide those particular cases. But the one, ca- but the cases that Joffrey seemed most interested in were the ones where he could inflict the maximum amount of violence on people, because of course he would. A thief had his hand chopped off by Sir Ellen Payne. Two knights who had a dispute over land were ordered to duel to death. A woman who had come to beg to bury a man accused of treason was dragged off to the dungeons as she, quote, must be a traitor too. Mm, awful. And of course, Lord Janos Slint the fuckboy is there to nod his frog-faced head every single time when Joffrey was up there doing injustice from the Iron Throne. Sansa stares at him, remembering how he threw Ned down to the ground. She wished she could hurt him, wished that some hero would throw him down and cut his head off. But a voice inside her whispered, there are no heroes. And she remembered what Lord Peter had said to her, here in this very hall. Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. And life... The monsters win, she told herself. Sansa hears Sandra's voice in her head telling her to save herself some pain. The final case Joffrey hears is that of a singer who had sung a song ridiculing Joffrey's quote-unquote father, Robert. So Joffrey orders a harp brought forward and the singer to perform the song. The singer tries to say that he won't sing it again, but Joffrey tells him to sing it anyways. So the man sings the song about Robert fighting a pig, and Sansa notes that some verses of the song sound like the pig is Cersei. When the singer is done, Joffrey asks whether the singer would like to keep his tongue or his fingers. He has a day to decide. Lovely. And so Joffrey concludes the business of the court for the day. Sansa tries to flee immediately, but unfortunately, Joffrey's not done with Sansa. He meets her at the bottom of the balcony, commenting about how she looks so much better. 
Sansa says thanks, thinking about how she could say hollow words if she had to. Joffrey orders her to walk with him, and Sansa has no choice but to follow. Sansa follows Joffrey, and we get more lovely Joffrey stuff, like him saying that she's stupid, just like Cersei says. Sansa finds this a bit surprising. Cersei says this? Cersei was always so nice to Sansa. But yes, Cersei says this according to Joffrey, and she's worried as fuck about the children that will be just as stupid as Sansa is, which, goddamn, Cersei, you're a real piece of fucking work. But Sansa doesn't comment on any of that. The hound was right, she thought to herself. I am only a little bird, repeating the words they taught me. As they get outside, the sun is setting, turning the stones of the Red Keep into a dark blood red color, because of course they are, and Joffrey says that he'll get Sansa with a child soon enough, and if that child is stupid, he'll have Sansa's head cut off, because of course he would. He asks when Sansa will be ready to have children, and Sansa says that she'll be ready when she's 12 or 13. Joffrey nods and tells Sansa they're going out of the gatehouse and up onto the battlements, but Sansa starts to panic, realizing where she's being taken. Please, no, don't make me. I beg of you. But Joffrey is here to show Sansa what happens to traitors, and Sansa won't like it, but she better obey Joffrey. Joff reaches for Sansa's hand, and Sander urges her to obey him. She doesn't really have a choice in the matter anyways. So she takes Joffrey's hand, and they climb up, quote, 12,000 stairs with horror waiting on the ramparts. Again, really nice writing on George's part. When they reach the top of the Baha'i battlements, the world opens up below them. Sansa looks out to Baylor Sep atop Visenya's Hill. The Street of Sisters and the Ruins of the Dragon Pit is over there to the east, the setting sun falling over the Gate of the Gods. The narrow sea was at Sansa's back, the fish market to her south, and the docks and the turbulent currents of the Blackwater Rush. And to the north, she turned that way and saw only the city, streets and alleys, and hills and bottoms and more streets and more alleys and the stone of distant walls. Yet she knew that beyond them was open country, farms and fields and forests, and beyond that, north and north and north, again stood Winterfell. That's, I like that a lot. Joffrey, though, is all like, what the fuck are you looking at? Once you see these heads mounted on, on the spikes. Because Joffrey's not a crazy fucking child, he needs to be sent to his room for a long, long time. Joffrey points to the heads, pointing out which one is Ned's. Good King Joffrey then orders Sander to twist the head around so she could see more fully. Sandra Clegane complies, and Sansa thinks it really doesn't look much like Ned at all these days. How long do I have to look? Joffrey seemed disappointed. Do you want to see the rest? Sansa's all like, sure, whatever, dude. And Joffrey proceeds over to two empty spikes and says they're for Stannis and Renly. <laughs> sure, kid, sure. Joff points to another utterly unrecognizable head and says that this was Septimore Dane's head. Why did you kill her? She was Godsworn. She was a traitor, Joffrey says. Then Joffrey repeats his question about what Sansa will give him for his birthday and says maybe he'll give her something instead, like her brother's head. And Sander, didn't you call Rob Stark the Lord of the Wooden Sword? Ah, well, Sander can't quite recall these days. Interesting, that. But Joffrey brings Sansa some new information. Rob Stark defeated Joffrey's dad, <coughs> his, his uncle, in battle with treachery and deceit. Cersei cried and cried and cried, which to Joffrey meant that she was weak because... This kid, man. So Joffrey's going to raise a host to take on Rob Stark. <laughs> Go get him, Tiger. And he'll bring Sansa a present. Her brother's head. A kind of menace took her over then. And she heard herself say, maybe my brother will give me your head. Joffrey scowls like an idiot and orders brave Sir Marin Trant to hit Sansa. And of course, that shit knight grabs Sansa's chin and hits her twice like the brave knight that he is. He's not brave. Sansa's lip splits open and blood runs down her chin. She feels tears on her face and Joffrey tells her to stop crying and to start smiling. Sansa complies and then Joffrey tells Sansa to wipe that blood off her face. But then Sansa realizes that the parapet wall is high, but the bailey was unwalled. 
If she could come up to Joffrey and shove him over, he'd fall some, you know, 70 or 80 feet. He was standing right there, right there, smirking at her with those fat worm lips. You could do it, she told herself. You could. Do it right now. It wouldn't even matter if she went over with him. It wouldn't matter at all. Instead, Sandra Clegane kneels before her and between her and Joffrey and dabs the blood from her lip. The moment an opportunity to push Joffrey over the side was gone, and Sansa lowers her eyes, thanking Sandra Clegane. She was a good girl, and always remembered her courtesies. And that is A Game of Thrones Sansa 6, our final Sansa chapter, and I have to say, my favorite, fa- favorite, fa- my favorite Sansa chapter in this book. Now, I get everyone loves the hands turning chapter, but this chapter just runs the gamut of emotions for me, and I find myself, you know, liking Sansa here. Yeah, you heard. You, uh, stop, stop smirking, Evan. I, I see you smirking across from me. You heard that right. Me. I find myself liking Sansa in this chapter. What did you all think? In a way, we've been talking about this chapter all along. Whenever we brought up the perfect structure of Sansa's downfall in this book, or talked about the book's central theme of of the fall from grace, or even discussed the deconstruction of fantasy imagery more broadly, it's always been with Sansa Six in mind. This is where George tips his hand in the most devastatingly effective manner imaginable. Sansa's dreams about courtesy and chivalry and all the underlying assumptions about how the world works, they were like a, a stained glass window in her mind, this too perfect image of the reality that was waiting for her in the South. And now that window is shattered, and even as she recoils from it, the the shards left behind are all she has to defend herself against what's coming in the window. There might be more viscerally exciting chapters in Book 1, but there is no more thematically significant chapter in A Game of Thrones than Sansa 6. And on reread, I think this is where George lays out not only what Sansa's story is about, but what the whole story is about. What did you think, McCall? Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, the more I reread it, the more I think that this is this chapter is especially impressive for how human it is, um, how human George's deconstruction of the you know, the fantasy tropes are. Um, I've always personally loved this chapter for like bringing us like the real level one Sansa, um, because before then she was really, I think, functioning at the, you know, zero childhood level where nothing needs to be questioned or changed and it's everything is fine. Um, and she finds her consciousness in, in one of the most traumatic ways possible in this, in this chapter. Um, but I think this is also, you know, I, I kind of want to shove this chapter under the noses of people who are like, oh, Martin's a, you know, nihilist and just, you know, deconstructs the good parts of fantasy and whatever. Um, because he's not doing anything sadistic or grim dark or, you know, I mean, it, it is sadistic technically, but we're, we're, seeing these things that you know the, the the genius to me is that like we're seeing it through the point of view of someone who would never be the hero in any other tradition traditional story um she's the victim she's wearing a name tag that says victim um and if the story was following predictable beats i think she would have been dead already actually um, and i'll talk about that later um but Sansa matters here and her psychology and her fear and her grief and her pain all matter here deeply. Um, he cares about Martin cares about her dreams. He cares about the powder she uses to cover her face about the feeling of seeing somebody that you used to love and seeing them truly for the first time, which is, you know, I think something that a lot of people experience, but it's especially powerful when you're a kid and you're, like those, those degrees of adulthood are coming on you very slowly. Um, so, you know, the destruct, the deconstruction here 
is really not just of like the pretty princess. It's the idea that the pretty princess doesn't get to have a story and doesn't get to have depth and development. Um, that's worth both his time to write and our time to read. I really do think that it's, you could skip this chapter if you were just reading, you know, on a, on a plot level. Um, but like you said, Emmett, like it's, it's, integral to the themes of the of the story um and also on a character level as well um and it's you know i i I personally like never saw my you know it's like oh i never saw myself in in fantasy but like i did it's just that the people i saw as you know were were the scared little princesses in the corner who like either died or got rescued by somebody else and so like this chapter was kind of a revelation for me of Sansa's point of view of a character like that being valuable and being important. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think when we look at how the princess archetype is portrayed in most fantasy fiction, it's always a side character. It's always a character who's pushed to the side, who's there to provide the main male prince or knight with comfort or something basically to boost up the main character, right? Because it's rarely ever the case. Like we talked, like Emmett has talked at length about how George has said that, you know, he wanted to have a story about Catelyn Stark because he had never read a story that about King Arthur's mother. At the same time, like we have like the character of Guinevere in a lot of these King Arthur stories is always a side character, either acting against like the main characters who are, of, of course, Arthur and Lancelot and some of these other characters as well. And I think it's really good that we have the spotlight focused on the characters who are typically neglected in fantasy. Meanwhile, like the main characters in quotation marks that you might see in fantasy, like your Rob Starks or your Stannis Brathians, of course, because we got to get that reference in early on. They're the ones Ding. who don't have, right. <laughs> Ding. <laughs> They're the ones that don't have a POV. They have POVs around them. The side characters are the POVs to them, so to speak. So we have Catelyn Stark, who is going to be the POV for Rob Stark. We have Davos Seaworth, who is going to be the key, who is going to be the POV for Stannis Baratheon come a Clash of Kings in a few weeks. And, you know, the cool thing is that you know, Sansa Stark is, is a main character and that's really cool. And that's what the kind of deconstruction that George is going for here, where we have main characters who are typically not going to be in your primary cast of characters in traditional fantasy literature. And I really love how this chapter opens to Sansa in complete physical and spiritual darkness, waking, sleeping, whatever. It's all darkness at the open. And, and I want to believe that Sansa's chapter open is works as kind of a metaphor for the long night and what it does to people. You know, consider and contrast the darkness imagery compared to what old Dan says about the long night to Bram in his fourth chapter. Fear is for the long night when the sun hides his face for years at a time and little children are born and live and die all in darkness. So, you know, in my, I don't know if I'm overthinking it, but I can almost see Sansa 6 as a microcosm for the story of the long night and the last hero too. You know, Sansa and the last hero shiver in cold and grief respectively. One by one, their friends and family die. Even the last hero's dog dies or lady in the case of Sansa. And they, in quotation marks, or the others come for them. But much like the long night seemed hopeless and Sansa and King's Landing also seems like a hopeless situation, George, like McCall said, is an annihilist and neither is Sansa, thankfully. The children will save the last hero and the child Sansa Stark will save everyone else too. Maybe, hopefully, probably. But before we get there, Sansa has to process a shitload of grief before she can see the light emanating from the north. I love that comparison you were drawing between Sansa's grief and trauma at the start of this chapter and the impact of the long night and dealing with it as the last hero. I think that's that 
dovetails so well with what we were talking about with Bran 7 last week about how Maester Lewin was telling the story of the children of the forest and their loss and their grief and how that was wrapped up in Legends of the Long Night and the Last Hero and was interrupted by the arrival of the modern day grief, the modern day loss of Ned Stark for his children. So I, I, I definitely think George is drawing that connection that the Long Night is a metaphorical night of the soul, a long night of the soul that you, you enter into as you enter adulthood in these horrible ways and you lose your innocence and you're, you're lost among various paths. And that's something we've talked about before with the, the others and their, their whites being metaphors for ghosts and other, you know, useful walking dead in terms of the, <laughs> the, the psychological spirits that haunt you. And that's definitely something we see developing with Sansa here. Like Arya and Bran in their last respective chapters that we've done the last couple of weeks, Arya 5 and Bran 7, were only dealing directly with Ned's death at the end of those chapters. And that was devastating for sure. But Sansa 6 opens afterward and the entire chapter is just marinating in that. And this, so this is where George really explores it. And it's just, it's just devastating. Sansa's not eating and she's considering suicide and she's just haunted by flashbacks to her father's execution and nightmares of Illyn Payne, who of course is the avatar of death coming for her next. And to say the least, this is a significant change in tone from the previous Sansa chapters. Horrible things were happening in those two. You had, uh, Sir Hugh die at the hands tourney and like the Jane Poole coming in saying they're killing everyone at the tower of the, uh, of the hand after Ned's downfall. But the bubble overall was holding secure in those chapters. It was starting to tremble a bit as, as we went through them beat by beat as we've discussed, but it was holding and now it's burst. And George is so keyed into not just the thematic resonance of that, but as McCall was saying, the emotional reverberations of that in this chapter. You just, you just feel this downfall Sansa has gone through that she's giving herself to the darkness, to grief and horror and suicidal ideation and just utter alienation from yourself and from everyone else. And this chapter is, in, is designed in part to guide the audience in how to interpret and feel about the death of Ned Stark, that it is this just shattering breakdown that marks an end to innocence. And so much of Sansa's story going forward is going to be about just trying to recover from what happens mm-hmm. in this chapter, even as the ripple effects of Sansa sex continue and get worse. And that contrast with the previous Sansa chapters in the book is what makes it work so well. We're seeing the other side of disillusionment, as we did when Bran woke up. Bran had his dreams of knighthood and then his insane fever dream of godhood. And then he woke up and everyone had left and he was just sit there with his, his legs that didn't work anymore. And this is an, an even more keyed up dramatic version of that. And so in that way, I would I would hold up Sansa six. As, as not just a thematic lens through which to look at the series as a whole, although it is that, but also as just an exemplary close to a character's arc within a single book. Like the, what I was saying <laughs> about Brand 7 last week, that I didn't think it really was a, a capper in any way to his storyline in this book. This is just a perfect way to conclude. I mean, hold, hold this chapter up side by side with Sansa 1, her first POV chapter in the Game of Thrones, and you will see both how everything has changed and how it really hasn't. That all the elements <laughs> that have been weaponized against her were already there in the start. Our daughter has gone from heaven to hell, but hell was nestled inside heaven, waiting for her all along. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's really interesting that this is the chapter that deals with, like, the gross side of Ned's execution, right? Like, Mm. Arya doesn't see it. Um, She hears that sigh from the crowd. Bran obviously doesn't see it. Um, And then Sansa is confronted with the memory a of like his his physical death and then also his decapitated head um and i just think it's a really interesting like decision for george to bring i mean obviously out of necessity since it's the only one left in king's landing but also like she she is kind of the character who you would least expect to be confronted with the like extremely grisly 
evidence of this of this reality um and yet it's through her that we see this and i think one of sansa's incredible moments of strength is is how she deals with that but you know sansa is i think a character who confounds a lot of people um (laughs) not everyone loves her on their first read um and i think that's fair because george is like painfully realistic when he writes Sansa and her journey is not linear. She is angry at Joffrey when he first comes in, but she's not like, I hate you immediately. Like it takes her a minute to realize that he's an actual monster. Um, She keeps clinging to that phrase. I'll be good. I'll be good. Which like for me, just, just, it, it has hooks in my heart because I know that feeling of like, I'll be a good girl and everything will be okay. And I'll play by the rules and I'll, and I'll do the things that people tell me and everything will be fine. Um, and she views that as her, like she knows that it's not going to help, but, but she clings to that idea that it's like her passport to safety. She's even her, I think it's a great moment when Joffrey is like, Oh yeah, my mother says you're super stupid. And she's like, really? Like, but but she was so nice to me and hmm. you know because for Sansa that's true and like the fact is that Ned's death is only one experience and she continues to grapple with the way you know she knows things are the way you know the, the hound the way things are the way the hound tells her things are and that she recognizes and the way she wishes things could be um and she was, you know, told that they would be. And I think that's part of why her character works so well as an agent for a fantasy deconstruction, because she doesn't lose her connection to the world of songs and stories. Um, she actually does in, in this chapter. Um, but overall, obviously, she's she's all in with the Florian and John Quill and, and all those stories that she continues to talk to herself about. Um you know, sometimes it's beautiful and sometimes it's foolish, but she retains a certain amount of romantic idealism, which to me makes her not like the Hound and not like Joffrey, not like any of these characters who are or skirt the boundaries of nihilism. It makes her a lot like George. Um, I was thinking a lot of his description of fantasy about how fantasy is in the colors and the banners waving and, you know, and, and that's an extremely Sansa-esque view her evolution is coming to see the other side of it. Like in those two battles that you guys were talking about the emotion and the practical coolness of it. I also really just like how womb like the opening of this chapter is. It really to me is George being like, be born, (laughs) be born (laughs) child. You know, she's like to use the bird metaphor. She's actually hatching. Um, She begins the chapter in a womb like darkness. She's, you know, her bed is at the heart of the hold fast, which kind of to me gives, gives me the image of like, you know, a baby resting beneath its mother's heart. And when she's found, she's in a fetal position. She was in bed, curled up tight, her curtains drawn, and she could not have said if it was noon or midnight, very much like a child in the womb. And then she's, brought into the world quite literally with blood and pain. I like the idea that it's the hound who midwives her out of her womb, of the womb that she's in, personally. It does make a contrast to the fact that, you know, Maester Creepy Crescent is there and is, you know, allegedly or theoretically supposed to be the one to do that. But he definitely doesn't. He just drives her back further in and I was thinking when we were going over the synopsis that like she contemplates suicide a lot in the chapter but like Mm -hmm. that might count as an attempt because if your doctor gives you something and they're like take a little bit once every night 
and you drink the whole thing, like that could be like an a legit suicide attempt on her part. And it's really, really powerful. And I think that I think it's it's important that she is ultimately pulled from that, yes, by the by the horrible magnetism of Joffrey and, and his demands, but also that she's guided by the hound. Absolutely. I mean, she wouldn't be the first princess in the tower to choose that fate. Uh, just, mm-hmm. just in the recent backstory, there's a Shara Dane who ostensibly suffered the fate of uh, leaping off the Palestone Tower down in Starfall. And Sansa thinking of, of doing that herself kind of makes her this generation's incarnation of that same that same struggle and that same fate. And as you say, it's not a linear progression. It's not meant to be. Like, on the one hand, the, the fantasy world of Sansa's previous chapters has been just completely ripped apart. Joffrey has exposed himself as this monster, and the, the, the pale, white, beautiful Kingsguard knights are beating her, and they have all these heads on spikes. It's just a nightmare. But on the other hand, the, the signifiers of those stories are still around. Joffrey is still kind of in that his own terrifying version of that mindset himself. And she, as you say, she never really abandons it. And... Some elements of those stories have now been weaponized against her, like in the case especially of the knights. But others, like the the wall of courtesy and chivalry she can put up, that's her only recourse and her only method of attaining some control, even as, as you say, it doesn't always work and she knows it. And this this image of paradise that she was clinging to so strongly early on, better than the songs in this book... It, that doesn't, it doesn't fade from her POV now that it's been revealed that Joffrey doesn't embody it. It's always reborn in another way that Tyrells take over for it in A Storm of Swords. They're like a, a little more grown up, a little more mature take on this, this image of the, the better life that Sansa wants. And then that's replaced by the nobility of the Vale when she gets there. And especially in her released Winds of Winter chapter when the, the court around the gates of the moon seemed to be, okay, this is the new swarm of, of hopeful characters for Sansa that she's going to invest herself in and probably be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and each one represents a new shining face of the stories for her. Each season gives way to the next. You have the Lannister spring when she's young, and then the Tyrell summer, then the Vale autumn, and now winter is coming. Mm-hmm. And uh, as McCall was saying, Sansa's arc is, is brutal and helpless and deliberately stagnant for long portions because of a certain emotional realism that George is going for, which uh, deliberately involves frustration. But there is, I think, change in a sense of a journey in how this element evolves, that she's always being reborn, as you said. like The, the Blackwater and the Eerie are crucibles in that same way for her character. She's porcelain, and then she's ivory, and then she's steel, and her character has gone through a similar evolution in a more meta sense. And it, it, It's an arc of, of transformation and not just destruction, which is what I think makes it so powerful. It is very powerful that we have her actually transforming and actually experiencing these events in real time, I think you brought up a great point about how it's a slow, very, very slow burn and that Sansa doesn't, quote unquote, escape until the Storm of Swords when she doesn't actually escape at all. She falls in the clutches of someone else, someone not quite new, as we'll find out relatively soon. But at the same time, it's important for the reader to kind of, you know, marinate both in the fate of Ned Stark. You have that great imagery there of not great, horrifying imagery more than anything else, of Sansa's memories of the event itself. And I, and I love what you were saying earlier, what you both were saying earlier about how Sansa's experiencing this event from the outset of her chapter all the way throughout is the thing that is, it is almost a, a thematic touchstone that George is drawing a lot of the emotions of Sansa that Sansa's experiencing around uh, in, in this chapter itself. And it's really, really good. And that marination is going to take a lot of time. We're going to be in King's Landing with Sansa Stark for, you know, for us, at least until like 2021, right? When we get into A Storm of Swords, into her later Storm of Swords chapters where she finally leaves. 
The other thing I really like too is you're talking about the different seasons of her life, the seasons of Sansa Stark, Lancer Spring, Tyrell Summer, and Vale Autumn, and now Winter's Coming. And that is a little tease. We will talk a little bit more about the winter portion of that towards the end of this podcast itself. But to actually kind of transition us though, we, you talk, you brought up a lot of great points about chivalry and about these different versions of chivalry and stories that are influencing Sansa Stark from the beginning to the end. You know, I love back in Sansa 2 where you have that filigree of gold that she's seeing the world through at the very beginning through her palaquin going through King's Landing until she's finally in the black of night and being escorted by Sandra Clegane. This chapter works almost as a deconstruction of that filigree of gold that she's viewed the world at previously. You know, Bacall made a great point about how, you know, Sansa, this is the birth of Sansa Stark. This is her actual awakening into this world. And I think it's really, really good that we get this deconstruction of fantasy, both in its image as well as the chivalric ethos that it pretends to, uh, portends slash pretends to uphold in this chapter i think the deconstruction is working on these multiple interlocking levels where you have at at one aspect that's being aimed at in-universe ideals of chivalry and courtesy which don't actually protect the people they're supposed to be protecting and end up empowering the worst people in society as we see kind of enacted in the backstory and in the present day and at another level what george is talking about when he talks about the songs and the stories is the fantasy genre and and bad elements he sees coming out of people who have learned the wrong lessons from tolkien and then at another more real world level as we've also mentioned before there's his own disillusionment with his own generation and his own sense coming out of the that the make make love not war era didn't pay off the way he hoped it would and a lot of his generation got corrupted along the way Similar to kind of, I think, how George Lucas got a lot more cynical when he got to the Star Wars prequels than he was in, in, in the first Star Wars movie. <laughs> Ding, another Star Wars prequels reference. Another Star Wars prequel reference. <laughs> Whatever you may think of Attack of the Clones, it's a very, very dark and angry movie about the, the kind of the political ideals that Lucas was reaching for kind of naively with the, with the first couple movies in that series. And I think you see that reflected in this book more through Sansa than any other character because more than anyone else in the book she is believed in chivalry and courtesy and the wonder and splendor of court life awaiting her in the south and that was rooted in her you know pre-modern media consumption the songs that she was hoping life would be better than that she stocked up on at Winterfell throughout her childhood and it provides the foundation for her worldview as in that Joffrey and Cersei are good because they look and talk mostly like the good guys in the story so they must be one-to-one the good people in reality and now we have arrived at George's argument about that imagery and that while it is it is lush and vivid and enjoyable in its own right, the banners in the wind capturing the audience's heart, it often serves both in universe and in stories to cover up utter fucking horrors. And in universe, the power and pageantry of the Kingsguard with their pretty white cloaks flashing in the sun allows them to get away with crimes because who's going to challenge the Kingsguard? And in, in real life, in the fantasy genre, bad Tolkien ripoffs, as George has said, have, have muddled, the, muddled the clarity of that original vision and fallen back on shorthand that doesn't reflect the reality of how power dynamics in this world would work. So it, it works so critically, as, as McCall said, that Sansa holds on to this imagery because that's crucial to George's hustle, where he's not abandoning the fantasy imagery, he's weaponizing it. It would be in hmm. some way easier if Sansa had like been stolen away from this world entirely, like been kidnapped in the dead of night and taken to a strange new land, because then this is still a world she could long for and idealize properly. And now she can't, because what gives this chapter its sting is that this world has turned on her. It's not that the, the, the beautiful prince is gone, it's that the beautiful prince is the villain now. And that, <laughs> just, that, that hurts at, a, at a, so much deeper level for her as a person, of course. 
but also I think it makes it so much more thematically resonant for us as readers that George is connecting Sansa's, the fall of Sansa's naivete to our own as readers of, of this book and the genre. I just think it's really interesting, you know, to, to think about the parallels between Sansa's journey and Arya's journey. Um, you know, in, ter- in terms of like bad Tolkien ripoffs, I think we have kind of, it's pretty easy to, to fit, you know, Sansa into the, you have Arwen versus the Eowyns of the world. Um, but George does it, I mean, and Eowyn is awesome. So really no shade on Tolkien here, but like, you know, it, it, it does get so much deeper and so much more real. But when you look at Arya and Sansa, they, they both kind of, find similar villains I think in that like it is you know San- Arya is definitely a lot cannier in a way she's lucky that Yorin turns out to be a true knight in the sense that he is a, a true brother of the Night's Watch and, and does want to protect you know protect her as opposed to obviously Amory Lorch and all the, the other scary evil lords that she ends up meeting like it, it is the scales falling from both of their eyes but in very different ways and obviously wildly different contexts. But I, I like that that it like that that similarity kind of plays out continually. Yeah. It, Did that make sense? <laughs> it does make a lot of sense that Arya gets incredibly lucky that she runs to Yorn at the end of her her chapter where she's witnessing Ned Stark's execution. And she's also incredibly lucky that Yorin doesn't turn out to be an enormous piece of shit because he could have easily been that guy, right? I mean, he's got a nine or 10 year old girl at his beck and call and has her basically hostage. And it's unclear at the end of, like we talked about at the end of, of Arya's final chapter, whether, you know, George leaves it on a cliffhanger. So it's unclear for Arya. We, we as readers know better, but it's unclear for Arya whether, you know, this guy means her ill or means her good, you know. Sansa's in a pretty precarious situation here at King's Landing. She's got no friends. She's got nothing at, at, at all here. At least Arya has Yorin. But somehow Sansa also survives, too. So I think we're looking at, you know, a, a situation where George is saying, you know, Arya has her wits about her. She has some kind of, quote unquote, street smarts, not total street smarts, as we talked about. But she has the ability to survive. Sansa is likewise a survivor. And she has to survive some of the worst fucking horrible shit that you could imagine and the way that she and she has to survive it because the people who are inflicting the worst pain on her are the ones who are in power who can't be questioned like joffrey joffrey as we talk as we see in the council scene itself you know not even cersei could convince him not to do some sort of horrible act of violence or or order some act of violence on people who didn't really have it coming but talking about joffrey though when we get to the deconstruction itself, we have to look at how Sansa's conception of Joffrey changes from Sansa 1 all the way through Sansa 6. So in Sansa 1, you know, she's looking at Joffrey worshipfully. He's so gallant and he rescued her in quotation marks from Sir Illyn and the Hound. Why it almost seemed like the songs, like the time, like the time that Serwin of the Mirror Shield saved Princess Derisa? Princess Derisa from the Giants or Prince Aemon the Dragonite Champion Queen Daris's honor against evil Sir Morgul's slanders. And, you know, George, for the readers, he's signaling to the readers that Sansa's perception is not the accurate one by having, you know, Joffrey torture Micah later on in in that chapter itself. You know, that kind of chivalric imagery is then undercut by Joffrey's actions later on. 
And, you know, as the readers too, we should also be looking at it like, will Sir Ellen and the Hound do anything but obey Joffrey in this situation? Uh, of course not, as we find out at Ned Stark's execution itself. So, and then in Sansa 2, we have, you know, Sansa thinking that Joffrey was the soul of courtesy at the night after the tourney itself, you know, singing to Sansa, talking with her, sharing with compliments, making her laugh, sharing bl- bits of court gossiping, explaining moon boys, japes. And Sansa was, quote, so captivated that she forgot all her courtesies and ignored September Dane seated to her left. And then George immediately deconstructs that afterwards, after the feast is over, when Joffrey doesn't walk her back to the Red Keep, instead delegating that responsibility to Sandra Clegane to escort her back. And then in Sansa 3, we have the the time where, you know, Sansa's now witnessing a lot of different things going on in King's Landing, starting to get a more realistic feel for how the world actually works down here, where she tells Jane Poole about the dream that she had when it's actually not a dream. Remember that she lies and says that it's a dream in order to make it more of a reality than it actually is, about how Joffrey would take be the one to take the white heart but, you know, it was more of a wish to her, but it sounded better to call it a dream. And then Jane Poole asks whether, you know, did Joffrey go up to the heart and touch it as with his bare hand and do it no harm? And Sansa's like, no, he, he shot it with a golden arrow and brought it back for me. You know, in the song, and, and she talks about how the knights never kill magical beasts in the songs. They went up and touched the white heart and did them no harm. But she knew Joffrey liked hunting, especially the killing part. And, you know, like we said back in episode 44, it ain't an arc unless Sansa is getting signals, albeit unconscious ones or subconscious ones, that Joff ain't the gallant prince that Sansa is making him out consciously to be. Sansa 4 then takes us on to where she's being in front of the small council and she's thinking about Joffrey is now the king and, you know, her gallant prince would never hurt her or never hurt her father, no matter what might have been done. If she went to him and pleaded for mercy, she was certain he'd listen. He had to listen. He loved her. Even the queen said so. Joff would need to punish father, and she goes on to talk about how Ned will be exiled across the narrow sea, but she can bring him back. Of course, Joffrey's sense of mercy is um, not quite uh, a real sense of mercy, as we discover in Arya's final chapter, as well as this chapter, too. I mean, it's individual. It's creative. You have to give him that. I mean, it's um, it's it's a unique form of mercy, right? It's, yes, it's um, it's a very unique form of mercy. It is a deconstruction of mercy. <laughs> oh God! Turns out Joffrey was George all along. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, there we whoa. go. It's like that mercy, like the mercy chapter from The Winds of Winter, which is not quite so merciful as as no. our. <laughs> Oh, boy. And then finally, in Sansa 5, the last chapter we did before this Sansa chapter, you know, we have Sansa begging for her father's life and Joffrey saying about how Sansa's sweet words have moved him. And he's Sansa perceives him as being all gallant and everything like that. And Sansa's like, he is going to confess his treason. He will. Oh, I know he will. Her heart is soaring in this entire exchange. And, you know, as we discover in this chapter, Joffrey's mercy, mercy, right, as uh, in quotation marks, is apparently not tearing Ned apart or having him flayed, which, oh, my fucking God, like, what? Okay, yeah, that's that kid needs some help. And then here in Sansa 6, we have her finally coming to the recognition. It, she's coming out of the womb, so to speak. She's come. She's seeing the world outside of those that outside of that gold filigree she saw in Sansa 2. Where she stares at Sansa, at, where she stares at Joffrey, and thinks that he looks arrogant, and he, she had once thought him handsome, but now his lips were as soft and as red as the worm she had found after rain, and her eye and his eyes were vain and cruel. I hate you, she whispered. So we're finally at the point where the deconstruction is complete. Sansa's discovered that Joffrey is the monster that readers have been sensing all along, and that George has been dropping clues about all along for us as readers. It's devastating for Sansa. But we shouldn't be like, 
Well, Sansa, you're just a fucking idiot for not realizing this all along because we filter our own perspective on reality through our own individual lenses and through the stories that we kind of ground ourselves in. And sometimes those stories are not the actual reality and sometimes our perceptions are wrong. And Sansa's perception is tragically, devastatingly wrong. And it's it's sad, but it's good at the same time. And it's inextricable from the myths and songs that clattered her judgment. Because yes, Joffrey is a monster, but he's also... A petulant child who's always talking about what his mommy says and what his mom wants to do next and the, the stupid little adventures he's going to lead. And it's that <laughs> contrast which really makes Joffrey so terrifying and so unpredictable in a political sense. Like, you can sense the nobles around him just don't really get who's in charge. Like, is this child really in charge or is Cersei going to step in and stop him if he gets too crazy? Well, she couldn't when Ned was executed, so maybe he's really in charge? I don't know. <laughs> and Joffrey, he's... In some ways, he is still naive in the way that Sansa was and that young Sandor was. But the way he talks about how the war is going to work and how he as king is supposed to be. But the naivete, that childishness, is filtered through, well, sadism, of course. The, the, the terrible lessons he's internalized from both Cersei and Robert and now unlimited power over those around him. So it's it's not even so much that Joffrey is like this, this Machiavellian like his grandfather who's cutting through the myths with hard realism for Sansa. It's that he's got the same fairy tale mindset, but it's just been turned on its head and hmm. given just free reign. And it's it's that terrifying connection between Sansa and Joffrey's childishness that makes it a really insidious critique, I think. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That he, you know, what Joffrey does in, in you know, the, the quote unquote justice that we're told of, it's very theatrical. It's very artistic in a horrible way um like it, it it feels like he is getting to play the part of the king in the story that he really wants to and the you know the the duel between the two knights particularly stood out to me with this because he's like you know they, they probably were like man i really hate you man i really hate you oh we can't we can't figure it out fine well Lord Redwine or whatever is away, so we're gonna go right to the king, and this will go well, and he'll prove me right for sure. And then this child is like, "Fight to the death!" (laughs) (laughs) You know, and they were probably—I mean, those two guys are probably like, "What the fuck?" Like, no, you know. And then obviously they have to because it's the king's command. Um, But but you know, you can only do that. I mean, you can do that maybe if you're a psychopath, but like. I think at at Joffrey's age, part of that is the fact that he is like, they're not real people. They're characters in a story that I'm writing. And I feel like, and you know, these two NPCs are going to now fight to the death because I told them to. And like, that is such a, like, it's such a perversion of the way Sansa views the world. Because like, even at her worst, she really does view stories as like, an idealistic way of living like she's she doesn't think people she doesn't like she thinks people should do good things because that's the way they do them in the story she you know whereas joffrey is like ooh, you know i got to you know it's it's the it's the classic trope of the horrible person who you know commits violence because they saw it on a video game Hmm. you know and and with joffrey it just happens to be real and he he bought into all that and he believes it 
Yeah, you know, you kind of wonder whether Joffrey was brought up under Robert Baratheon's stories of Robert's Rebellion and the Greyjoy Rebellion and hearing about how he was swinging his battle hammer left and right at the Trident or in Storming Pike. And he's like, yeah, this, this shit rocks, man. I love this shit. It's the best thing ever. But when you actually get down to it, what the actual, what war is and what goes outside of Robert's idealized version of fighting and how this was how Robert seems so alive when he was on the battlefield and so dead that he's ruling like you're actually experiencing people dying on the battlefield itself and Robert for whatever reason for multiple for a multitude of reasons has looked at his experiences and his history as being glorious because that's the only way that he can find meaning in his life in his life that is now meaningless as the one who's actually in charge so you have to imagine that the stories are the are the things that are influencing joffrey here that urging him forward to that violence and making violent proclamations from the iron throne and that's it's it's really good storytelling if you think about it from george's perspective and that joffrey is only acting as a untethered 13-year-old kid who has grown up thinking about war as basically a video game of watching other people die because he's heard it all from his dad so many for so many years now and now he gets to live out the fantasy and inflict violence on people just the same way that dad used to yeah and i mean it's it's in between right because like rob to compare him to rob you know he he is younger than rob and rob also has the benefit of having the extremely wise only did one thing wrong in her entire life, Catelyn Stark, by his side, um, giving him incredible advice. But, you know, whereas Joffrey has Cersei, who in her own way also kind of views everybody as a satellite to her story and her existence. That's such a powerful moment for me when, when we realize, when Tyrion realizes that Joffrey must have sent the cat's paw because he'd heard Robert talking about Bran. Hmm. And to me, that that is such a perfect storm of a kid who is a sadist and obviously doesn't think other people's lives have meaning, but is also getting that story from the source of all the stories that he's supposed to idolize. We do see a little bit of that here. Um, you know, obviously, again, there's there's no excuse for Joffrey to take take this to the extreme that he does. Um, and frankly, there's no excuse for the adults around him to allow him to. Cersei should have had a long talk with him and been, should have been like, listen, if you say anything during the court session, like you're going to bed without supper, kid. Like, I know you're a sadist. So we have to start training around this. Um, <laughs> that's, that would be a very different story. That, that like motif of stories and like which stories get told and which stories get followed by which characters is especially important in this chapter because it's one of Sansa's only chapters, certainly while she's under the name Sansa that she doesn't think of a song or a story and she's not like, I must be like this person or it's just like that story or, you know, all this. Um, and that she doesn't do that. Um, and there's only one song in this, uh, in this chapter. And that's the one about the, about Robert and the, the pig, um, <laughs> which is sung by the weeping tavern singer, um, who clearly thought he was being clever and didn't anticipate anything happening about this um and you know it, it's i mean you can imagine like george doesn't go into it too much but like i feel like it's just the few words he uses to describe the singer is very vivid to me i can just imagine the terror that that guy is experiencing 
And then, of course, he's given a very literary choice himself of losing his fingers or his tongue. It's it's hmm. like kind of Solomon-esque. And so that means that Joffrey kind of wraps up the whole the whole story, um, the whole song, uh, not with music, but of course with blood, because he is he is Joffrey. <laughs> he sure is, and yeah, he's quite literally silenced the song. That's what he's doing there, and that I would argue that's Euron's role in the overall narrative. That his you know his ship is the silence, and he's here to silence the song of ice and fire. But here in book one, it epitomizes how Joffrey, who was once the object of Sansa's song fuel desires has brutally destroyed those desires. And yet he himself is, is still so naive in some level and, and so drunk on his image that he, he can't help kind of blundering through life that way. He's like this this funhouse mirror reflection of, of Robert and his idealization of his youth. Like that that kind of had this, this impact on Joffrey. And it, it's in combination with his brutal aspects that make him so dangerous and so hard to predict. And yet and Sansa is, is surrounded, as you said, by these adults who are just enabling him and... The closest thing to a positive influence in this chapter, front to back, is Sandra Clegane, which, much as I love him, says a lot when when he's your best, most positive influence. And he reminds me of Stannis, another ding, ding. In, that, in that George encapsulates the best and worst of his world in a single person and does it at the slight remove of a non-point of view character. And that comes through really strongly here in which... You know, he's still an agent of a sadistic child monarch, but he's the only one who attends at all to Sansa's safety. And he's the only one who seems to get who she is as a person at all and how what she's going through now relates to who she was before. And that builds on the fantasy imagery because Sandor is a former believer. He got those burns playing with a toy knight after all and his hopes and dreams and values were scorched away. He clearly sees Sansa and her predicament through that filter that she's going through the same process and reacts to her accordingly. And this will repeat itself over the course of A Clash of Kings during Joffrey's attack on her in the throne room. And again, during the bread riots where he's saving her and trying to stick up for her as as someone who can, you know, hold on to those values. But the Blackwater where that relationship comes to a climax complicates things significantly because while Sandor is promising to rescue and protect Sansa as a true knight does... He's also holding a knife to her throat, as the knife as the knights do in reality, not in the stories. And he obviously also swears and yells at her a lot, and he's permanently drunk and so forth. <laughs> but beyond that, though, it's just the idea of him that gives her strength, like the cloak after he's gone, and when she draws strength from that, and the memory of the kiss that she kind of invents, and she draws strength from that. So it's not so much that the Hound is her true, pure savior in disguise, but what support he did give was a necessary step in her long walk out of the abyss, that he was someone who at least contributed positively which so few people in Santa's environment do and in this chapter specifically he's just such a blatant counterpoint to Marin Trant who honestly on reread he might be more frightening than Joffrey like she was just a thing to him is such a it's such a chilling idea for Sansa to have to conceptualize especially in context of her story so far like you contrast her reaction to Barristan's beautiful Kingsguard armor in her first chapter where it just took her breath away and now in her last chapter and it's that same white armor is covered with her own blood like he he easily could have killed her with that initial blow like Joffrey, Joffrey didn't even have to give him a specific order so he's to again go back to the long night comparisons he, he's like a white he's armored in snow white and killing on his night king's whims and just the sight of this grown man a sworn knight armed and armored beating a helpless traumatized child it just really sets the tone for Joffrey's blessedly short-lived reign. Yeah, it's it occurred to me, I think more than it has before going through this chapter, how 
fascinatingly powerful um, Sander Clegane could have been if he had chosen to be that way. Joffrey quotes his line about, you know, oh, you called Rob the Lord of the Wooden Sword or whatever earlier. And he's like, um, I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, you get the sense that if he had chosen to to be an influence one way or another on Joffrey, like that actually could have been an extremely powerful thing personally and politically. Uh, and it's fascinating that he has less than zero desire to, to have that influence. And instead the people that he, he in spite of himself decides to influence is um, our Sansa and um, Arya, and, you know, kind of against his own, Against his own better judgment or worse judgment, or I don't know if he has better judgment, but I mean, I I love Sansa and the Hound's relationship. I I absolutely adore it, and I think that like it's it's almost magnetic to me because they both recognize something of themselves in each other. It's not just from um, Sanders' perspective to Sansa, although that's extremely powerful that he recognizes his his younger self playing with knights and believing that all was was good and bright but she very quickly you know she she off the bat she's hearing his voice in her in her ears um in this in this chapter um and she starts to realize that you know shit shit is not pretty and it's it's you know it's practical and it's brutal and you know you kind of have to save yourself some pain girl i think george could have chosen to write clegane as like a Ha ha, now you see I was right, you know, like an edgelord type of thing. But he he's not that at all. Like he responds to the fact that she is being exposed to this against his will. I think those old values are, are creeping in. Like I really do think that like as as fucked up as the stuff that happens between them is, she makes him want to believe in those values again. Um and to recognize that there's a difference between being between being able to see things as realistic and darker and, you know, re- rejecting hypocritical, you know, markers of, of power um, and the nihilism of the type that Marin Trant and the White Walkers exhibit. Um, oh, my God. Did I say White Walkers? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and the others <laughs> um, exhibit. And it's a very long journey, and it's obviously, again, not linear, but, you know, and it, it involves a lot of very questionable decisions, and I'm still not 100% sure what the unkiss means, and if it's a good thing or a bad thing, please my sad little heart, though it does. Um, but I I think that the fact, like, to, to me, the magnetism between the two characters comes from, begins to, to, to come from this chapter, because they are so different, but they change each other in such like fundamental deep rooted ways. And maybe I want them to kiss when Sansa is grown up and capable of consent. Maybe possible. I mean, listen, my, do you want to know what my crack ship is for this, for this stupid series? (laughs) My, my crack ship is Stansa. Yay. Lemon poppy. That will make Eliana very happy. 
Yes, because it's like, you know what? I don't I don't ship it. Like I'm not like, oh, I actually want these two characters to get together in the books. But it makes just enough sense to me. I could just imagine the political circumstances under which that could happen that like I'm just fascinated by it. So that is my crack ship. And shut up, Jeff. Jeff, weigh what? in on these discussions. <laughs> um Okay, your, so your input is demanded. Well, you know, we, we do have that, that story from Fire and Blood Volume 1 of Queen Alice St. Targaryen meeting up with Alaric Stark in the story, which to which Evan and I have talked a little bit about in our patron episodes about Fire and Blood Volume 1, which seems like it could potentially pretend to Sansa and Stannis interacting in Winterfell with Sansa taking with Stan with Stannis with Stannis <laughs> taking on the the role of Alaric Stark and holding Winterfell and being kind of standoffish. And Brutal and Alice St. Targaryen being compared to Sansa Stark as being the one who actually charms Stannis into being a uh, a more likable person and to, you know, they actually go out on hunt and go out and hunt and do stuff like that. So I think it's really, really good. But I mean, like there's, I don't know, I, 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 I can, I think in a like a, a place where like the five year gap actually happened in the story itself. I could be okay with Sansa and Sandor getting together, but without a five-year gap, I still am a little bit shrinking away from that idea of Sansa and, and Sandor getting together. And I, but I do think that there is a strong connection. I think you bring up a great point that that Sansa works to kind of heal Sandor a little bit and heal him from the numerous traumas that he's experienced both as a child and as an adult. And I do hope that influence continues, even if there's no actual physical romantic connection between the two and it's obviously a huge part of sandor's relationship to sansa has to do with her age and her gender that's what evokes the the knightly virtues within his heart you know is the protecting the young and the innocent but at the same time that goes hand in hand with really queasy sexuality which sandor is not immune to any more than someone like littlefinger is or sir dantos and the role of gender plays an increasingly important role in sansa's story going forward cersei will tell sansa at the blackwater about Upon the onset of puberty, she began to notice how differently she was being treated from Jamie, And this is that moment for, for Sansa, where she crosses that line from childhood to adulthood. And we've already seen Littlefinger staring at her like she's naked, and now we have this gauntlet of violence, actual and threatened, rooted in her gender. And, and not just the, the obvious ones like Joffrey, but also Maester Pycelle, who takes advantage of this office in the most creepy, like he didn't even seem to think about it, like of course he was going to do that. It's just what, just what he does when he has the opportunity. And it's just disgusting, and Sansa's society and world you have conditioned her not to defend herself because there are supposed to be men who will do that for her. That's what Catelyn lays out to Brienne in book two. My father, my brother, my uncle, my husband. They are to keep me safe as I am to keep my children safe, and that's how it's supposed to work. And now Sansa sees the flip side of that promise of overlapping protections. What if your husband-to-be kills your father? What if the knight sworn to protect you now instead beat you on his orders? And what, what Sansa realizes is that the songs and stories have in some way provided a cover for this they've allowed the sadists to infiltrate positions of power because the positions of power give them this veneer of trustworthiness and automatic goodness that they can then exploit so they have helpless women to attack and far from condemning them the crown urges them on and women not being given the tools and training to defend themselves reflects not this idealized vision of chivalry where no one would dare harm them so they never need to learn to protect themselves but it's a deliberate vulnerability baked into the system, forcing women to depend on men. And when those men prove undependable or worse, women are left with nothing. Like, even Cersei's attempt to make Joffrey different by telling him a king never beats his wife because of what Robert did to her. 
Even that fails, because the only thing he took away from that is to have others to do his beating for him. Grown adults in armor will beat Sansa for me. And Sansa is being beaten not only for disobedience, but failure to specifically fit the ideal in Joffrey's mind of the pretty wife he wants saying pretty things to him. And she has to smile just so and wear the right dress. Again, Sansa hasn't actually escaped the the trappings of the songs and stories, but they've been turned into a cage for her instead of this uh, vessel of expression and enlightenment. And it's it's so telling that... Like, for Joffrey, he doesn't have to live up to the ideal in Sansa's mind. She has to live up to the ideal in his mind. He doesn't have to be the proper king, and they don't have to be the proper knights. But she has to be the one to keep the song going. She has to sing her verse properly, but he can do whatever the hell he wants. And that just sets up the the power dynamic that exists in this real world versus the song so well. It's very different from these days, though. It's true. (laughs) We, We enlightened moderns have moved past any such issues. I wish Star Trek was real. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I just kept thinking also, you know, the division between Sansa and her own self um, is really what, what comes through. You know, she's not, she hasn't just lost Jane Poole and her father and, and Arya and everyone around her in Septim Mordain. She's lost control of her own body, um, even before, you know, even before technically that happens, um, even before her conversation with Cersei about like, yay, and now you'll you'll bear the demon seed and you know love them and whatever. Um, but she like she her own body is not only not hers, but it's also being used against her. And this is just such a hmm. consistent theme through Sansa's story that it's almost a little startling to see it for the first time. Because she just doesn't get it. She's like, oh, no, I'm going to flower and have and have my sweet prince's children. And she just she just has no idea. And this is a repeating theme with her. Like even when she's out of King's Landing, um, obviously Littlefinger is, you know, the the actual really bad touch kiss um, that happens there is, is, you know, a big point in that. Um, but it's even something mundane, like the fact that, you know, she has to pretend to be somebody else, somebody that, by the way, Littlefinger can more easily creep on. And when her hair <laughs> starts to change and she runs out of hair dye, that is a threat to her. Again, not something she can control. It's literally who she is. Um, and yeah, again, I just, I found it like there, she has a line about how, like when Joffrey's like, oh, well, when are you going to flower? And she, she couldn't even look at him. You know, she, he shamed her so. And it's going to become such a normal thing, you know, like I, I don't remember the exact passage, but like when, you know, when they're at, uh, I mean, Joffrey has multiple taunts when he, when she and Tyrion are married and it's like, oh, well, if you knew the way to her bed, she'd, you know, have a baby in her belly by now. And like that just stops being threatening or embarrassing. It's literally just par for the course. And that's just like becomes the way she has to live, which I think probably if you think about it, works in Littlefinger's favor because she becomes so callous to two people treating her like a, a pre-pregnant thing, basically, um, that I think, yeah, she, she definitely loses some of the ability to preserve that about herself, to preserve her own autonomy. Yeah, you can see that in when she gets her period for the first time in A Clash of Kings and she says it felt like her body has betrayed her. It's unfurled this mm-hmm. banner of Lannister crimson for all the world to see. 
And that, that just makes it skin-crawling because, you know, the only space of freedom left that Sansa has is those those few inches of brain matter inside her skull. You know, that's all she's got. The only place you can be free is inside her own head. So when your own, when your own self seems to betray you, your own body seems to betray you, then you just, you have no recourse left and you, you see, you see all the, all safety being pulled away from Sansa. And that's, that's the, the one thing that the feudal world was supposed to promise her was safety. All these orders of, of men and institutions and power structures are just there to keep you, Sansa Stark, the daughter of Winterfell, safe. And they're just all completely failing her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you also see that the, the failure too and, and her being unsafe and her being endangered. I, I think, the, the threat of rape that Joffrey is presenting her here in this chapter and repeatedly presents to her and through clash and through storm. I, I can honestly, I honestly think that it stems from Robert and his own kind of toxic conception of masculinity of that women are objects to. Oh, everything is Robert's fault. A, a lot I'm, of it. I'm is. fully on board with this. I, I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's Robert's fault. A lot of it's also Cersei's enabling, but I mean, Robert's like ideology, if you want to even call it that, is that women are objects to, I mean, what is, what is it that, um, uh, that they say about Robert, if it if it couldn't if he couldn't fuck it, fight it, or or drink it, then then abort him, sort of thing. And that's the kind of mentality that would appeal to some sort of psychopathic little shit in the form of Joffrey Baratheon slash Lannister. And that's really kind of toxic. Yeah, the scene at the top of the of the walls is, I mean, just such a such a classic. And you know, to me, I I, I don't know how you can read this and not. Like, even if you haven't liked Sansa before, just like not have a fist pump moment because she is like, it's perfectly in character and yet it's almost like deliriously rebellious. Um, you know, just, just her perception of it. Um, after they get up there, she, you know, when he's like, Oh, I want you to lick it on the head. Here's your father. And she's like, he can make me look at the heads, but he can't make me see them, which I have to think is a, direct and deliberate contrast to um Sirio's words to Arya which is always like look with your eyes hear with your ears you know like actually perceive what your senses are telling you and Sansa like you know uh, bless Ned really but like he was completely unaware that she might need a guide in this world because he also bought into that social contract, right? Um, Arya was the one who didn't fit in and so needed some kind of guide, but Sansa didn't. She just had Septa Mordain and that was fine. Um, and Cersei, and that was totally fine. Um, so she's there on the ramparts alone, surrounded by enemies and dead protectors, and she teaches herself not to see, um, rather to rather than like uh, actually absorb what she's seeing. Um which is just an incredibly powerful start for her arc also. No matter how she gets there, she she is obviously becoming much more canny, much more capable of playing the game and understanding and, and actually seeing rather than just looking. So it's funny because the end, like the last line of this chapter has always kind of bugged me. Marin Trent hits her again and she gives a Joffrey a bloody smile and he's like, ew. <laughs> it's like, what did you think was going to happen? You fucking asshole. Um, but she says, um, so the moment was gone. Sansa lowered her eyes when um, Sandor steps between her and Joffrey. And uh, uh, she was a good girl and always remembered her courtesies. And I always found this like a little bit of like the air going out of the chapter. And I know I said before that, like, obviously it's not a straight line and her growth is, is not linear, but 
it felt to me like George was kind of leaving himself a door open of like, is she going to change or is she actually not going to change? And she's just going to become like this Lannister, like zombie um, that, that they want her to be. But obviously, you know, it's, it's Arya obviously also ends her chapter on a, on a hugely like it's a cliffhanger. Like we don't know exactly where she's going from there. And, you know, even brand to a certain extent. So um, I don't know. What did you guys think? I can totally see what you were saying. It definitely feels uh, a little frustrating. And you can make an argument, I think, that the overall revenge is bad theme in the story conflates genuinely monstrous attempts at payback that's just blood for blood endlessly with more righteous fights against abusers and oppressors. And you could say that Georgia occasionally lumps those two in together when they shouldn't be. For me, I think it's it's a powerful moment that works well in combination with what comes right before it. Sansa considering killing Joffrey at probable cost of her own life and Sandor stopping her from doing so. I think if we asked George, he'd probably say that the point isn't so much that you shouldn't strike back, but that making striking back the core of your identity won't make you happy and healthy in the long run. And it's a way of giving your abuser a a victory over you. And that's what makes Sandor's presence here so powerful. He wants, above all, to kill Gregor, and maybe he will yet, as in the show. (laughs) But he got the chance at the hands tourney and chose not to, as we said in our episode on, on... covering Sansa 2 and then Eddard 7, the combined hands tourney, is that Sandor was taking no un- cuts at Gregor's unprotected face, even though Gregor was going for his own. And in this moment, he steps between Sansa and her abuser, directly protecting him, because Sansa was about to kill him, and Sandor's in the Kingsguard, and that's his job. But also, at some level, protecting her from herself, protecting her from becoming someone like him. And at that moment, you know, kneeling down, dabbing at her wounds, he could be in that stained glass window. He's the very image of chivalry, Sandor Clegane of all people, with his burned face and horrible backstory. But of course, all that leaves Sansa with is her courtesy. Uh, for me, it's a, it's a knockout of a closing line because she initially saw courtesy and chivalry as her path to good life, and now they're trapping and imprisoning her, but they're still the only tools available to her. All she can do is try to find some rules to live by. And just the idea of Sansa being a good girl and knowing her courtesies, just that idea has changed so much over the course of this book Hmm. that it's gone from her, you know, her cherished ideals, just this last scrap. And so while I'm ultimately glad that Sandor steps in, I think some frustration of this line makes sense to me because I think it reflects Sansa's powerlessness. She has no good options. And so her story becomes about what you do when you have no good options and how you find scraps of freedom wherever she can. She can't escape. She can't kill Joffrey, ultimately, so she she defies him whenever she can. And I think that that makes her moments of defiance stand out so strongly. They're all the more powerful because they're they're in the contrast of just this horrible clampdown on her person and soul. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm satisfied with that. I also think that, like, that's a really good point about the revenge thing. Because, I mean, I'm I'm not one of the um, essay people in the fandom. Um, I, I was done with that in school and I do I, I write tweets I don't write essays um, but I think that like revenge and the consequences of revenge and the realities of revenge are, is maybe the only thing that I could uh, see myself writing an essay on and I think that George kind of uses that a lot against the the readers um, and I think he does that obviously with with Theon you know it's like like I hate Theon at the end of, of Clash of Kings. I'm like, I hope this guy literally gets everything that he is, has coming to him. And then he actually gets that. And you're like, fuck, this is not what I meant. 
you know, <laughs> or like, I just didn't understand. Um, and I think he does the same or a similar thing with Sansa here too. You know, I'm sure a lot of people read her early chapters and are like this, this bitch needs to get some sense knocked into her. And then she literally does. And it's awful and it's horrific. And it's, uh, it's grown adults beating a child. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I think, I think this line will always kind of like percolate with me just because the whole, the chapter as a whole is so like important. It, it, it's, it pulls Sansa so strongly out of that, that mold. And then she has to go back into that mold. But I, I accept your explanation. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> what do you think, Jeff? I think, you know, Sansa's talked a lot about courtesy being a lady's armor, right? And I think it's an interesting choice of wording that it's armor, because what is armor used for? It's used for defense. It's not used for offense, right? You never, you at least you don't typically think of like a breastplate being used to like chop someone in half. Instead, it's supposed to block blows from be, from proving fatal to you as the person who is bearing the armor. So I think like Sansa being a good girl and knowing her courtesies works in that way, in that she is essentially defenseless save for her courtesies because that's the only thing that is going to basically keep her alive for the next three books or the next two books because we're at the end of the first book. But I think that about wraps us up for our depth section of this portion of the podcast, kind of keeping in the same vein of weapons and armor and things like that. We do have this interesting line here in this chapter that a lot of people think is just amazing foreshadowing that George thought of back in the mid-90s that came to pass in 2011's book known as The Dance of Dragons, the best book in the series, where the quote is from this chapter, quote, Sansa wished that some hero would throw Janos Slint down and cut his head off. Now, a lot of people think that this foreshadows Lord Commander Jon Snow ordering Dullar's Ed to fetch him a block, but that ain't precisely the case. Instead, when George first wrote John 2 from A Dance of Dragons, Janos Slint died this way, and this comes from a reading that he did in 2008. Take him to the wall, John says, and hang him. Slint freaks, yelling, struggling, kicking as they throw him into a cage and start lifting. I have friends. If Tywin Lannister were alive, you would never. His voice fades away as he is lifted to the top. The rope they found was 100 feet long, but the wall was 700 feet tall. They hear his neck crack as he hits the end of the rope. So in that version that George wrote initially, Janos was hanged, not actually beheaded. But fans told George that John would probably act more like Ned in the situation and behead Janos Slint. And George rightfully edited this to have John behead Janos Slint. So I'm going to call Sansa's thought about Janos being thrown down and having his head chopped off, quote, retcon foreshadowing because it wasn't written with the intent to foreshadow what happens to Janos come a dance to dragons however come the publication of that glorious book and Ed fetch me a block it can now be read as foreshadowing retcon of course I like that turn of phrase I think that fits it perfectly uh, Joffrey mentions in this chapter about how if a child born between him and Sansa is stupid he'll behead her and find a smarter wife Thankfully, this is never realized. However, the finding a new wife angle seems intended as foreshadowing for Sansa being set aside in favor of Marjorie Tyrell as Joffrey's wife come a storm of swords. I think it's really good that we have that kind of foreshadowing here in place and that groundwork that's going to end up paying off in a glorious fashion again come, come a storm of swords. Then we also have Sansa being hit by Kingsguard knights such as quote-unquote Sir Marin Tramp. And we're going to see, unfortunately, a lot more of that come a Clash of Kings with even more disturbing overtones such as Sansa being 
punched in the stomach by Sir Boros Blunt, fuck that guy, and hit with the flat side of his sword. And though we give Jamie Lannister a lot of shade for his wrongdoing in this podcast, one of the highlights of Jamie Lannister's arc is him telling Baron Tram off in his final Storm of Swords chapter over his conduct towards Sansa. Sir Marin, Jamie smiled at the sour knight with the rust red hair and the pouches under his eyes. I have heard it said that Joffrey made use of you to chastise Sansa Stark. He turned the white book around one-handed. Here, show me where it is in our vows that we swear to beat women and children. Which, as Emmett will do, wah, love it, love it, love it, love it. For sure, Jamie and Sandor have a lot in common as these kind of dark incarnations of the knightly archetype that have to try to work their way back to the light. And yeah, Sandor is this more kind of anti-hero type warning Sansa about how to act and behave towards Joffrey as well as kind of helping Sansa by offering elements of his clothing to her, dabbing her her lip, and then offering his cloak in a clash of kings. Uh, you know, it's it's a, it's a strong motif in, in their stories, as we were saying. And at the end of everything, there's there's a terrific theory by our friend Lady Gwyn from Radio Westeros that Sansa retaining Sandor's cloak is a signal that they'll meet again and have that have that connection and, and come back together, as, as McCall suggested, with uh, much maturity having passed between them. Lady Gwyn's theories honestly boy me <laughs> when I'm feeling down. Yeah. Um, I actually, so I, for, for my little foreshadowing or retroactive foreshadowing or retconning um, thing, um, the line about uh, Sansa when she's contemplating throwing herself out the window um, in years to come, the singers would write songs of her grief. Her body would lie on the stones below, broken and innocent, shaming all those who had betrayed her. Um, took me right back to the deaths of Helena Targaryen and Jahera in Fire and Blood, um, which are both horrific. Um, and both of these young women die from allegedly throwing themselves out the window of their chambers. Almost certainly not in the case of Jahera. Um, she's probably ironically killed by a Kingsguard knight. Um, Helena, it's not sure. It's weird. Um, in my head, I was like, man, maybe it was the same room, which I guess technically it could be because they're all in Magor's Holdfast. Um, but, you know, they, they die horrible deaths. They, they actually, I mean, it's not even that they splatter on the stones. They get skewered on the, on the um, spikes that are in the moat. Um, it's awful. Um, <laughs> but Sansa's never heard of them. Um, and I think... You know, and there are no songs about them. There, you know, there's nobody. There, there are no grand elegies that that survive from this horrific part of the Dance of the Dragons. People, people focus on the dragons and the fighting and um, fucking Daemon Targaryen, just the worst. Um, and you know, so aside from the fact that George probably didn't also know who Helena and Jahera were in 1996. Um, Sansa doesn't know who they are because, like, they're not important to the general concept of the sto- of of the story that people in Westeros tell themselves, and so Sansa throwing herself out the window would not have made the slightest impact on Cersei or uh, Ilan Payne or any of these people who she imagines would have felt guilty or shamed with her innocence. You know, um, it. it, it it just wouldn't, she wouldn't have been immortalized in song. Cersei would have disposed of her very quietly and pretended she was still alive, most likely. Um, yeah, so it's it's really bittersweet that Sansa is like 
thinking of her way out again through a story um, and she can like reenact something that she doesn't even know she reenacted, she would have been reenacting um, that again, you know, hasn't, hasn't made a dent in the general mythology. So mm-hmm. basically Sansa, write your own story, <laughs> live girl, get it. <laughs> um, and then I just also thought it was an interesting parallel um, between Sansa's climb up to the battlements uh, that she describes as something out of a nightmare. Every step was a struggle as if she were pulling her feet out of ankle deep mud. There were more steps than she would have believed. A thousand, thousand steps and horror waiting on the ramparts. Um, and then the climb that she does to escape King's Landing at the end of Storm of Swords. Um, Sansa dared not look down. She kept her eyes on the face of the cliff, making certain of each step before reaching for the next. The stone was rough and cold. Sometimes she could feel her fingers slipping and the handholds were not as evenly spaced as she would have liked. The bells would not, would not stop ringing. Before she was halfway down, her arms were trembling and she knew she was going to fall. One more step, she told herself. One more step. She had to keep moving. If she stopped, she would never start again and Dawn would, still fi- would find her still clinging to the cliff, frozen in fear. One more step and one more step. And... It's it's really I think that's deliberate to me that like she has at the beginning of at, at, at her birth moment, she climbs a horrible set of stairs to to be tortured, basically. Um, and then she descends a ladder um, in, a, in a very similar way um, to be delivered from that same horror. Um and I, yeah, and, you know, for, for a character who basically almost doesn't move <laughs> um, throughout her entire experience in King's Landing, I, I find that contrast really powerful and, and noteworthy. Yeah, that's great. She's descending through all these levels of hell and circles of disillusionment with all these mentor characters who are promising escape or mercy and then don't deliver it to her. And as you say, there's the, the, the trap of thinking she can write herself a better role by just writing herself out of the narrative entirely, but that just means she's going to be swallowed up by it and that she's got that kind of the more harder and painful task of coming up with a new archetype for herself and not not <laughs> not just relying on one of these prefabricated narratives she can fill, but coming up with a new one. And what better new narrative than her as Queen of the fucking North, right? I mean... Ooh. Yeah, here we go. You know, this is coming. So when we did our Patreon episode on Jon Snow and Young Griff, we talked about how Jon had received inadvertent royal training at the hands of his various mentors, his Donald Noyes, his Lord Commander Mormonts, and so forth, while Young Griff received explicit king training at the hands of his minders. Difference between mentors there. For Sansa, though, her training to be queen is a bit more explicit, right? Because she's supposed to be queen of the Seven Kingdoms. She's supposed to be Joffrey's bride. Yet there's a key excellent difference. Sansa expects to be Queen of the Seven Kingdoms, even here at this dark juncture of the story, as Joffrey talks about over and over again. But the story is instead seeming to move Sansa to be Queen of the North. And it's foreshadowed in an interesting way here in this very early chapter in the Game of Thrones, which is, quote, Yet she knew that beyond them was open country, farms and fields and forests. And beyond that, north and north and north again stood Winterfell. And that's where Sansa's heart and future lie, in my opinion, in the North. And in Game of Thrones Season 8, the final end state for Sansa Stark is as Queen of the North, or Queen in the North, an independent kingdom divided from the other six kingdoms. Is this going to be a similar book end state for Sansa Stark that we saw in the TV show? And what evidence do we see for or against Sansa becoming Queen of the North in the books? 
I was happy to see it at the end of Season 8. It was my favorite part of Endgame, probably on the whole. And I've long thought of a similar fate like that for Sansa. So it makes sense in the books. That you have this arc of the storybook image of the queen that she wants to be, that she thinks Cersei is. And then you get the brutal deconstruction of that image, especially in this chapter. And then you get the outcome of that process as the hard-earned real thing, as, as making a, a queen story that works, as, as I was just saying. And I think part of that is is moving the locus of that arc from King's Landing, which is this place she projected and wasn't actually at all what she thought it was going to be, back to Winterfell, back to her home, back to a place that has actual meaning that she has a connection to. And I, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially with Cersei and Littlefinger as these cautionary tales. Cersei is just the worst kind of queen, dedicated to ruling through fear and not even nourishing the children for whom she's ostensibly doing all of this. Sansa sees through that eventually and decides that, quote, if I'm ever queen, I'll make them love me, which is a very kind of pointed foreshadowing line, I think. And then you have Littlefinger, who allowed the death of his dreams to just destroy his empathy and humanity. Look no further than Jane Poole, as you were saying earlier, Jeff. And Sansa instead has to cut to the core of the values embedded in the songs and stories she loves and make that distinction that that, um, McCall was alluding to, that the key realization is that those values weren't naive, so you should embrace nihilism. The naivete is the assumption that the world around her does and would uphold those values. That's what she has to realize is not always true. That the world should uphold them, though, that's an ideal that she should hold on to. And, you know, Sansa, if you think about the structure of the story, is kind of behind John and Danny in terms of leadership arcs. She's younger and hasn't actually been in charge yet, unlike them in A Dance with Dragons especially. But I think you could argue that sets her up to be in a position of power at the end, coming into her own, instead of in the middle like them, which suggests that by the end, John and Danny will be out of leadership because they were either, you know, dead or in exile. Uh, you know, as with as with so many things, Game of Thrones, it was just kind of like, well, I will take this thing that makes me happy and ignore <laughs> how we got here, all the stuff around it, whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I know Chloe's noted that like it's really thrilling to have the final spoken words of the of the show be Queen in the North referring to Sansa. So that that was definitely something I appreciated. Um, but I also think that. Um, you know, I have a weird little theory that kind of um, would dovetail with her either being Lady of Winterfell or Queen in the North, um, something like that, which is basically um, that I think that if you read the story up until Arya's chapter where Ned is killed, Arya, I mean, um, Sansa or Ned could have did I say Arya's killed? Ned is killed, whatever. You guys know what happened. You've read these books before. Um <laughs> But that um, Sansa or Ned could have logically died there. And I actually think Sansa is more logically likely to have died because I think the thematic foreshadowing of Ned killing her direwolf. And we've already at that point in the story established like the direwolves are the children, (laughs) like low key, but they are literally the kids. Um, And he 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 kills her. He kills this dog who's done nothing um, except be a lady. Um, and, and like, literally that's, that's what the dog had, what the wolf has, has existed to do. Um, much like Sansa exists to please and, and act like a lady around her. Um, not just that, but he, he kills her with, um, you know, the Valyrian steel great gun ice. Um, that is obviously goes off in Ned's own execution, but I think, could easily have gone off in Sansa's. Um, 
But there's really no thematic fallout from that. You have a lot of people being like, oh, that means Sansa's not a Stark anymore. She lost her wolf and blah, blah, blah. And just that's <laughs> bullshit. I don't have to go into why that's bullshit. That's utter bullshit. Read this chapter. Read all of Sansa's chapters and you'll realize why that's bullshit. Um, but yeah, so I think that that would lead other like like theoretically otherwise to a story where Ned is sent north and Sansa is killed on Cersei's orders by Illyn Payne with ice. Sansa continues to have a, a very deep connection with Illyn Payne um, in terms of terror, even before this, like she, she's terrified of him from the, from the first time she sees him. And that obviously is increased once Ned is killed by him. Um, but, and there's also just something that I can't shake, which is that all of Sansa's chapters, except for, um, except for this last one. And then, um, one where Arya separates her and Ned, all of them are otherwise directly uh, either before or after Ned's chapters. And I just think that there's such a close connection there between these two characters that is not appreciated a lot of the time. And I, I've seen a lot of like really smart people who, who point out that, um, you know, there is a lot of similarity between them. A lot of Sansa's traits, you know, she's kind of written off as the, as the Southerner. Um, but she has like the, her tendency to be very naive and optimistic and empathetic. And she's not very ruthless. Um, all of which are traits that come from Ned, not Catelyn. Um, Catelyn would have been just fine in King's Landing. I'm, I'm just going to say um, she would not have. Uh, again, I know Ned's not stupid, but he he was naive in certain ways. Um, so I think that this this you know kind of for me comes to like represent the the real bond that there is between Ned and Sansa, um, and we don't really get to exercise that while Ned is alive. Um, but the fact that Sansa is alive attests to the strength of that bond. Um, and then she basically takes over for him in the narrative as her, as our, you know, our stark point of view in King's Landing. Um, very similar to Ned. They don't see or understand everything that they should. Um, but they do kind of grow and realize kind of toward the end. Like, you know, I, I think, I think you could maybe draw a parallel. I haven't, I haven't thought about this enough but i think you could draw a parallel between ned's last chapter and sansa's realization in the godswood of how joffrey's death has come about and kind of the seeing all the pieces click into place and and their role in that um but i think the ultimate end of that is that sansa returns north and takes over ned's seat but it's it's not john it's not bran or Rickon, it's sansa who becomes his the, the his true basically emotional heir um, and, uh, you know, maybe that could, that could dovetail with Ned's bones being brought home. But I think, um, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I think this is going to happen, um, because people have a lot of really great theories that make me very happy. And that automatically makes me go, well, well that's not going to happen. <laughs> George isn't going to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to have to cry no matter what. Um, so, uh, but this is what I could see happening and what I would like to see happen next week when we get Winds of Winter. Yes, next week. Right, exactly. Next week <laughs> for the Winds of Winter. I also, it's funny, like, I forget where I am sometimes because, like, on Vassals of Kingsgrave, we are all pretty pessimistic about this shit. Like, we're not, we're, like, I, I know the next week thing is a joke, but I remember being at Ice and Firecon and being like, 
whoa, people actually think the books are going to come out. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't spoken to people like that in a while. Well, you know, I George has set himself a deadline of uh, a soft deadline, of course, for summer 2020. So right around the corner next week, the week after yeah, that, for sure. week after that. Any minute now, any hour, every day, month or year for sure. But yeah, I think like ultimately I think that there's I think there's a case for optimism to be made about Sansa Stark's arc. And I think that we know, as we've said previous times in the past, that George did reveal the end states of various characters. And George has confirmed as recently as the Emmys in 2018. And it is not a blog post at the end of the, at the conclusion of the show that the end states of the characters will likely reflect that, which will be found in the books themselves. So Sansa as queen in the North, I think it's going to make a lot of sense. And I think too, that we also have the fact that Sansa is our point of our stark point of view in Winterfell. But as Stark point of view in Winterfell, she's gotten to see a whole, she's gotten to see a whole lot more things than Ned has, and has developed a more cosmopolitan, more complex worldview as a result. And as a result of that more complex worldview, I think she's going to be well positioned to be Queen of the North. That she may not make the same mistakes that Ned and Rob make in their various fashions as Lord of Winterfell and King of the North. And I think that's ultimately going to be to Sansa's benefit for her to be more well-rounded to see the horrors of Joffrey and of Cersei and of seeing how chivalry could be turned on its head and made to enforce brutality and how she could be the better queen. She could be the queen that has the people love her. And I think that's a good point in Sansa's favor. So I do think it's going to be an event that occurs in the books themselves. I think that George has essentially had Sansa Stark acting in a way that's been a six book prologue to her actual venturing into political power as she advances into the north and gains the swords of the veil and hopefully helps John and Danny and the others to prevent the long night from actually unfolding in the north itself. And ultimately, you know, like I said in my kind of opening comments, I see a lot of parallels between Sansa Stark and the last hero. And I think one of the great things that could be a potential future parallel for Sansa Stark in the la- and the last hero is that Sansa Stark will be the restorative force in the North that will bring that broken country back into its fullness. And that is going to be a good ending because ultimately I think that George is an idealist and ultimately George is an optimist, even if it takes a long time to get to that optimism. Beautifully said. And I think that just about wraps us up for a Game of Thrones Sansa 6. So thank you so much, McCall, for coming on. We had a blast as we knew we would. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I This was just such a delight to, to really dive in with you guys and talk about Sansa so much. <laughs> <laughs> so much. It's the best. Well, we'll have a, a plenty of Sansa chapters and other chapters in the future that we'd love to have you back for. Do you want to tell the people where they can find your fine work? Uh, anytime. That would make me so happy. Um, you can find my writing at hypable.com, including an article I'm particularly proud about, proud of about why that stupid fucking petition about Game of Thrones season eight was <laughs> a stupid fucking petition, no matter how much you didn't like the final season. Um, you can find me on Twitter way too much uh, at ink as rain. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much where I am on various places on the internet. You can you can Google me, and then you'll find um, my uncle, who's a caterer, because his name is Michael, and everyone <laughs> thinks that that is my name, which it is not. It never was. <laughs> well said. That's well great. said. Yeah, well, we had a, we had a blast <laughs> having you on, and we will definitely have you back for future Sansa chapters in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. As always, thanks everyone for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple. 
Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, and of course, we are available now on Spotify, as we said this past couple weeks. Our Patreon can be found at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-F, where you can get bonus content, show notes, early access to episodes, and all sorts of bonus content as well. You can follow us at notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F at gmail.com. You can follow me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenda B. Fish on Twitter, Brenda B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So, join us next week for Daenerys 9, in which Danny faces the consequences of indulging in blood magic. Yes, there are actual consequences to that. Wouldn't you know? And we will be joined by yet another guest, Eliana, a.k.a. Arithmetric, from the Girls Gone Canon podcast and Glass Table Girl from the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit friend of ours who so really say to have her back on because she was if you guys want to go back she was on for danny too i think it was like episode eight or nine if i'm not mistaken definitely one of our early ones but we're even more excited for this one because she's written an excellent essay about danny between now and then which will be very relevant to our discussion of danny nine which is a very heavy chapter very all over the map in terms of dream sequences and dialogue scenes and bleak brutal stuff with the dothraki there's there's a lot to cover but Eliana is an expert on that particular part of the story, so we're very happy to have her back to cover that with us. Absolutely. So, again, thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to Bacall for joining us, and we will see you guys next week.